Father, we thank you for this morning that you're here with us. Um, God, I do pray that you just do what you do this morning. That you'd come, that you'd make us new, that you'd set people free. But Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith because, Father, never, ever, ever have you given us reason not to trust you. Ever. You are always faithful. We believe that this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Grab your Bibles. Go to uh, Genesis chapter 17. Uh, got a lot we want to talk about this morning. Um, go to Genesis chapter 17. If you've been following along in our Bible reading plan, this past week was just Genesis 17. However, I want to wander into the beginning of Genesis 18 as well too, and so I'm going to read uh, the first 15 verses of that because you might not have been reading it this past week. Um, however, to save a little bit on time, I'm just going to be skipping around a little bit in Genesis chapter 17, and then I'll be... be- Uh, reading the beginning of chapter 18 because it kind of goes together as a unit and and captures some things um, that I believe the Lord wants us to hear this morning. So Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 1, and then I'll tell you when I'm jumping around here. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. Down in verse 9, And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, uh, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Uh, Jump down to verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety, ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Then jump over to chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him, to Abram, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and young, and gave it 
and gave it to young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Shall I, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard or marvelous for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, no, you did laugh. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray one more time. Father, thanks for today. Lord, we love you. And uh, I pray that you would give us hearts to receive what you have for us this morning from your word. Um, Pray that you would change us. Pray that you would fill each one of us here this morning with your Holy Spirit. Cause our hearts to be soft. that The seed of the word might come in and take root and grow and bear fruit for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, a lot going on here uh, in this passage. Um, as I began to study it um, more in depth this past week, again, I've kind of been looking ahead at, at, at things that are coming, and there are, some, there are some big ideas that kind of rise to the surface as you read this, um, and I knew that I wanted to talk about them, but, but honestly, I wasn't sure how they all fit together. Um, in fact, I, I think I texted the interns on Friday because we didn't meet because of the snow, but... Uh, one of them had asked how the sermon prep was coming, and I said, it's by far the most random three-point sermon outline that I've ever had in my life. Uh, but there is some cohesion, some cohesion to it. But here are kind of the three big ideas. Uh, one, circumcision. Two, new names. And three, laughter. So, circumcision, new names, and laughter. Like, what does that have to do with me? Well, quite a bit, actually. It has to do with God. God is the one that brings all these things together. Um, But these ideas point to some really awesome, amazing uh, spiritual realities that should cause us to sing and to rejoice and to delight in all that God has done for us. And so let me say the same thing, those three points, uh, they're they're the same points but just in in a different way is that God gives us a new heart, he gives us a new identity, and he wants to give us a new joy. New hearts, new identity, new joy. But each one of those things flowing from those ideas. So, maybe something you weren't expecting to hear this morning when you came, maybe you were because you've been reading chapter 17, and you're like, what's Eric going to do with this? But let's chat about circumcision for a second, shall we? Circumcision is actually mentioned a lot in the Bible. Um, in fact, it's a little bit funny how often circumcision is, is, is mentioned. And there is some imagery here uh, that God wants us to understand, and it teaches us about some of the reality um, that he wants us to understand about who we are 
in Christ today under the new covenant now that, um, now that Christ has come and has paid the perfect sacrifice on the cross for us. Uh, but we, we can understand circumcision uh, when we begin to understand what it represents uh, in the New Testament. Um, and the main question that we want to be asking is, why did God choose this as the sign of the covenant? So again, as we've been journeying through the life of Abraham here, um, God is making a covenant with him. God has stepped down into sinful people all the way back in Genesis chapter 6. God has already had to wipe out the entire race because the thoughts of their hearts were only ever evil continually, the Bible says. And so he's, he sends the flood. He starts again with Noah. But again, they t- build the Tower of Babel. Things are going badly. God now steps down and he makes a covenant with one man, a barren man and woman, Abram and Sarai. And he just says, out of nowhere, just sheer, total, unmerited favor, grace, that's what that's called. He says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you great so that you will be a blessing uh, to, all, to all nations. And so over the course of Abram's life, Abram's had to get up. He's had to go to a land that God would show him. God showed him that land. But the primary promise that he's given him is that he's going to have a descendant, even though they cannot have kids. And he's not just going to have one descendant, but he's going to have as many as the stars of the heavens. Um, and so here, in chapter 17, God now comes and he, he establishes the covenant in this really formal way. Now back in chapter 15, if you've been following along, there was, there was also a covenant made. And it's really not a different covenant. There's some debate on whether these are different covenants or the same one. I see it all as kind of the same thing, all as kind of uh, one continuous covenant that God is making with Abraham over the course of his life. You'll remember they did this ceremony where they cut the animals in two and God walked through that path saying that God, basically saying that I'm blood earnest about keeping my promises to you. Um, but it kind of be a similar, um, a similar idea with that in chapter 17, is if um, we were going to make up some sort of a deal, the deal might be struck by initially just the broad strokes of the deal, and then we might shake hands, and then one of us might go back or get our lawyer or whatever, and we might draw, draw up the fine print of those broad terms, okay, that we talked about. And that's kind of what's happening here in chapter 17, is that in chapter 15 was kind of the initial handshake and the broad strokes of the agreement, but then in chapter 17, God comes down here and with more detail and specificity, um, details uh, and and outlines um, some of the intricacies of the covenant that he's going to make with Abram. And one one of the first things that he says, and we'll get to the name part here in a little bit too, but he talks about circumcision and that circumcision is to be the sign that God has made a covenant, that he's made a promise with Abraham. And again, the question is, why circumcision? Why not get a tattoo? Why not pierce your ear? Why not shave your head? Why not grow a mullet? Um, we can all know why I didn't want him to grow a mullet, but, um, you know, but why, like, why, why circumcision? Okay? Well, there's a couple of, there's a couple of clues, uh, I think, especially when we understand that in the New Testament, the New Testament takes this imagery of being circumcised physically for Jewish males and they, and they say that it's a picture of what now God has done in our hearts. That ultimately God is circumcising our hearts. He's doing something in our hearts. Okay, So Moses prophesied that this was going to happen in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. He said, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. In Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. 
but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. And so the New Testament, it picks up on this imagery of circumcision. It says, this is what God has done to your, to your heart. Okay. Now, a couple things about this. Number one is, you do not circumcise yourself. Okay, so God gives the command here um, that uh, later on in, in chapter 17, I don't think I read these verses, um, but like in verse 12 it says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought, bought to you with money or from any foreigner who is not your offspring, is that little Jewish boys would be circumcised on the eighth day. It was done to them. In the same way, we cannot change our hearts. It is done to us. By the Spirit of God. Secondly, another reason why circumcision was a fitting sign of this covenant is that <coughs> circumcision, obviously, is removal. <coughs> excuse me, of the foreskin from the male reproductive organ. Okay, we can just say it that way. Now, the reason this is fitting is because the nature of circumcision pointed to the nature of the covenant's ultimate fulfillment. And what I mean by that is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant that God was making with Abraham was that he was going to have this offspring or this seed, okay? As he says here, uh, actually in verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between you and between your offspring. ESV says offspring. The more literal translation is seed. Now, follow me here. Um, Josh, can we get that verse from Galatians chapter 3 up there? Do you have that? Galatians 3.16. Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 3, and he quotes verse 7 here in chapter 17. And he says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as one would be referring to many, but rather as in referring to one, and to your seed, which is Christ. So the reason circumcision was fitting is because there was going to be this seed, there was going to be this offspring, there was going to be this heir that was going to come from Abram's line. And this seed, Christ, is the one ultimately in whom the covenant is fulfilled, and he is ultimately our hope. Okay, And so, again, not to be crude or crass in any way, but if I can you know, just kind of think through this a little bit, is Jewish boys would be circumcised on the eighth day. Ideally, what they're to be taught as they're growing up is, is that every time you know, they would go to the bathroom or, or, or whatever, they would be reminded that they had been circumcised, and they would be reminded of this thought. All of me belongs to all of God. All of me to all of God. I belong, I belong to him. And all of me belong to all of God. He is one day going to send a descendant, an offspring, a seed that is going to save us from our sin. And so in that way also, circumcision, the act of physical circumcision, is fitting for the ultimate fulfillment of the one who's going to fulfill the covenant. Third, um, it's more personal than public. So again, shave your head, grow a mullet, pierce your ear, get a tattoo. Those are all things people can see. This is something that isn't for others to see. It's for the individual. Being reminded that all of them belongs to all of God in the same way. Personal salvation. 
You're not saved just because you belong to a Christian family. You must be circumcised of heart. The Holy Spirit must do a work in your heart. I don't care if your mom is a Christian, your daddy's a Christian, your grandpa's a Christian, your grandma's a Christian. You need to be born again. You must be born again. The Spirit of God must do a miracle in your heart to be made right with God. So it's more personal than public, just as physical circumcision was. But lastly, another reason why circumcision is is a fitting picture is that it was to be a reminder of the privilege of being called to purity as God's covenant people. So, and we don't have time to go through all of this, but again, the Bible actually talks about circumcision a lot, especially in the Old Testament. And as Israel was to be set apart, and this was to be one of the marks of them being set apart, for their males to be circumcised, is that throughout Israel's history, you will see them, though, begin to mingle with, quote-unquote, uncircumcised nations and groups, people who were not part of the covenant, people who were not looking for a Messiah, people to whom uh, God had told them to not intermarry and intermingle with, to not be intimate with. But they were. They disobeyed. And so over, t- over time, they began to intermarry. They began to be intimate with these other people that did not, did not fear God. And in so doing, they were, they were disregarding and treating flippantly the covenant promise that God had made to them to be set apart, holy to them. Again, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, speaking of those of us who are now under the new covenant, he uses this language of circumcision to talk about the privilege that we have of having the Spirit of God, having done something in our hearts, the Spirit now dwelling in us, so that we can rightly worship Jesus. In Philippians 3.3, Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Is that in the same way that the Jewish people were to take circumcision seriously and it was to remind them of their being set apart to God, in the same way, we should not treat flippantly the reality that if God has done a miracle in your heart, if he has circumcised your heart, if the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, folks, that is not to be taken lightly. Jesus died so that the Holy Spirit could live in you. And yes, a bunch of other reasons too. Forgiveness of sins that will be in heaven. But the primary difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is not in how people were being saved. That's always been by faith in God's promises. But the primary difference is that now in the New Covenant, because the perfect sacrifice has come, is that the Holy Spirit can now live inside of that which is unholy, you and I. But we are only made righteous by the blood of Christ. And I think that when we grow up in church, just like the nation of Israel did, later on, like, yeah, I'm circumcised, whatever, no big deal. I'm going to go inter, you know, intermingle and intermarry and be intimate with this group over here. We grow up in church and we go, yeah, what, have you accepted Jesus into your heart? And so as little kids, you know, yeah, we accept Jesus into our heart. I want to ask Jesus in, in, into our heart. And again, I'm not saying that that language is necessarily wrong, but don't become hard-hearted to it. Don't treat that as something that's t- something to be trifled with. Jesus died so that your heart could be circumcised and the Holy Spirit of God could live inside of you. It's amazing. 
And every day we, we wake up and we look for other people or for other philosophies or for other worldviews to lead us and to guide us through this life when God himself is living in us if we've been born again. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And I think that in the same way Israel came to disregard this sign of being set apart to God by physical circumcision, I, I feel like at times we also um, disregard this wonderful reality that God has done for us. Pro- Proverbs 4.23, we're commanded, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. J.C. Ryle said, the heart must be the principal point to which we attend in all the relations between God and our souls. What is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to every one of us? My son, give me your heart. How's your heart this morning? Have you thought at all about the condition of your heart? And I don't just mean for those of you that have trusted Christ as Lord and the Spirit of God does live in you. I don't just mean positionally. That positionally, you're before Christ. Nothing's going to change that. You're in Christ. You're safe and you're secure. But I mean practically. If that is positionally true, that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you and that the Spirit lives in you and He's done a miracle in your heart, do you treasure that? Do you value that? Do you wake up in the morning with a sense of awe that the God of the universe is in you? We should. Amen? All those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, the Bible says. But many times we're not led by Him because we totally disregard Him. And we lose our sense of amazement at the covenant that God has made with us. So God comes and he tells Abram to take on circumcision as this act, this sign of the covenant, rather. And he's given us new hearts. Secondly, God gives them new names. He gives them a new identity. Now this is kind of scattered throughout here. There are several, there are several new names. First of all, uh, to Abraham, okay, uh, at the beginning of chapter 17, He says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, this is verse 5, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude. Okay, Uh, Abram means exalted father, I'll come back and talk more about that in a second, and Abraham means father of a multitude. So exalted father, father of a multitude. He does the same thing with Sarah, Um, slight change, a little bit different. Um, The entomology on both Sarai and Sarah, both of the names mean princess. There's some commentators that say that Sarai uh, meant striver or wanderer, but there's not a whole lot of great proof for that. So they both mean princess, yet God changes the name, and and he adds this to it as he's giving Abraham this promise. In verse 16, 
He says, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So he changes her name, okay? And he says that now kings and peoples are going, are going to come from her. Now, the question is, why doesn't God just wait on the whole name change thing, okay? So again, the situation is here, Abraham is 99, Sarah's 90. They're not just old, they're old, old. And the Bible says they're old. And when the Bible says you're old, you know you're old, okay? And this has been the longing, but at the same time, the primary pain point of their heart for their entire lives is that they've wanted to have a child. And um, God has promised them this, yet it just, it just hasn't happened. And at this point, you, you'd think, well, man, why, why doesn't God just wait till, till after they have them? Well, again, going back to Abraham's name here, Abram meant exalted father, but that name, Exalted Father, so when Abram was first born and they named him Exalted Father, nobody calls a little baby Exalted Father, right? I mean, it's kind of weird, you know? Like, you wouldn't name your baby Exalted Father because he's just little. But in a patriarchal society where lineage and heritage and our ancestry is a really, really big deal, like it was, like it was back then, um, Abram's name, Exalted Father, wasn't speaking of him. It was speaking of his father, um, Bonus points, Bible trivia. Can anybody tell me who, what Abraham's father's name was? I've got a candy bar here for you that I'll toss out. Works well with youth group, not so well with adults. Tara, yes, who said it? I owe you a candy bar later on. Um, Tara was the same. So every time people would say Abram, exalted father, it wasn't speaking of him, it was speaking of Tara. So here, get, get this, get this. His, his name pointed backwards to his past. His name pointed to where he came from, okay? And his name pointed to the fact that, yeah, you know, I'm, my name makes much of my father who I came from, but I don't have any children. I'm barren. But God says, I'm going to switch your name to Abraham. And so he switches his identity from exalted father, not just to a father of a multitude, but instead of his name being a reminder of looking backwards, his name is now a reminder to look forward to what God was going to do. You see that? Because you're going to be the father of a multitude, even though you don't have any kids yet. And again, why didn't God, why didn't God just wait on this? Why didn't he wait until they actually had Isaac? I mean, think about the people in Abram's house. Think about, think about Sarah. You know, um, Abram goes in after having this meeting with God, and he's like, you need to start calling me father of a multitude. <laughs> really? Oh, and by the way, your name is now Sarah, princess, and kings are going to come from you. Really? But there's a very important point here that I think God's trying to communicate through the whole order of things and the name change that he gives, and it is this. It is that what we produce does not determine who we are, but who we are determines what we produce. I want you to get that. What we produce does not determine who we are. God did not wait to change his name until they were fruitful, until they had a kid. But who we are determines what we will produce.
God has the right, he has the authority, he has the power to change who we are. This is at the heart of the gospel message, is that God wants to change you, folks. He wants to change us. And this is really, 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 really good news. It's really good news. Because apart from him, we are barren. Apart from him, we can do no good thing. The Bible says that even our righteousness is as filthy rags. On our best day, we have nothing to bring before God and nothing that will bring any everlasting glory to him. But in the gospel, as we believe in Christ, God changes us. And he wants us to believe who he has made us to be. Okay? This is several months ago. You remember in the fall, we went through the book of Ephesians. Identity is a huge theme throughout the book of Ephesians. Is that even just in chapter 1, that you are called, you are chosen, you are predestined, you are adopted, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We are his people, we are his bride, we're his body, we're his family. We've been saved by grace, we've been raised up, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's who you are, that's what God says about you because of what Christ has done. If you want to be fruitful, you need to begin to believe what God says about you. Again, it's not that you're just naturally this. I, I want to press in on this a little bit because there's, if you're following what I'm saying, there, there's a lot of false teaching today out there that is similar to this, but it's, it's heretical. And um, a lot of it has to do, it, it's just, well, it's just new age. It's just repackaged new age teaching. But a lot of it, if anybody's, you know, gotten in and followed like the Enneagram, stuff like that, the idea with all that is, is that they'll say, you're like a seed, and what God does is he just, and you're, you're beautiful on the inside, and what God does is he just comes and he just strips away that hard outer shell, and then you will just bloom into who you've always been. I want to tell you something as straight up as I possibly can. That is a bunch of new age, man-centered, selfish garbage. That's not what the Bible says about us. The Bible says that, we are, that our hearts are desperately wicked, and nobody can understand them, the Bible says that apart from God's grace, we are by nature children of wrath. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen way short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says. Is God, Jesus does not exist just to make you into who you always wanted to be. He wants to change you. Abram and Sarah were barren. They couldn't do anything. God did a miracle. He transformed them. That's the gospel. Not that Jesus just exists to somehow remove your outer shell and just who you will be. You need changed. We need changed. We need a miracle to take place in our hearts. This is why Jesus came to die in our place as our substitute because that's what we deserved. That idea of all that new age teaching and what I just called garbage. Um, it, it just gets repackaged every couple years and comes about. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that I've seen in this, in this latest wave over the last several years of all this is that Christians are just gobbling it up hook, line, and sinker and mistaking it for the gospel. Um, it's not the gospel. Uh, and it minimizes the grace and power and authority 
of who God is and what he's done for us. There's another new name in the text, okay? There's Isaac, and we'll get to him in just a little bit. But there's another new name as well, and it's a name for God. Back in verse 1, he says, I am God Almighty. This is, the Hebrew name is El Shaddai. And this is the first time in the scriptures that this word appears. Um, and again, it's, there's some debate on what exactly El Shaddai means, but historically it's always been translated as God Almighty. In other words, I am mighty God, there's nothing that is too difficult for me. Nothing at all. And so why does God uh, wait to do this? Well, he, he does it because, again, what we produce does not determine who we are, but who we are determines what we produce. But how is God able to do this? Because of who he is. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. There is nothing that is too difficult for him. I don't care what your situation or circumstance is this morning. God has the power to change it. He's able. And not only is he able, but, but he's willing. For all those who will simply cry out to him, who will turn to him, who will stop trying to fix themselves. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. He has both the power and the authority to do what needs to be done. Those two ideas, if I can sit on those for just a second, this idea of both power and authority, okay? If I want to build an addition on on my house, okay, and uh, I have all the money saved up to be able to build this addition on my house, but I'm only renting, then I don't actually, then I have the, the power or the resource to change my house, but I don't have the authority to do so because it's not mine, right? I don't actually, I don't actually own it. Someone else does. On the other hand, if I own my house, but I don't have the money or don't have the resources in order to build that addition on, I therefore, I have the authority, but I don't have the power. God has both the power and the authority to change your life because he made you. You belong to him from the, in the sense of creation. And the essence of our sin is that we've all rebelled against him, and we like sheep have each gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Do we have that one, Josh? 2 Corinthians. Um, fairly well-known verse, slightly, slightly misunderstood. Paul says this, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So Abram according to the flesh, Abram, you're barren. Exalted Father points backwards. Okay. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, verse 17, fairly well-known verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And we usually hear that and we think it's speaking about what we are, that he's, he's made us new. But it's not just speaking about what we are, it's speaking about how we became what we are. Okay? So literally, in, in, in the Greek, it's therefore, if anyone in Christ, new creation. In Christ, new creation. In Christ, new creation. Here's the point. It, it, it's like when somebody says that They're born again when somebody has love now for God in their hearts. Paul's saying, new creation. God did that. That's a miracle. That's what just happened there. New creation. Yeah, yeah, he he is a new creation because, but but here's the thing. God did that. Didn't happen by man. It didn't happen by Abraham and Sarah in their own strength. We looked at that. We looked at what man can do in his own strength. They can birth an Ishmael. That's it. 
But if anyone's in Christ, new creation. That's why he goes on here, verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's a miracle, folks. New heart, circumcision of the heart, miracle. New identity in Christ, miracle. My question for you this morning is who are you living like? Are you living out of your identity that's rooted in the past, like Abram, exalted father, pointed backwards from where he came from? Or are you living out of your new identity that looks forward to what God says is true about you? That's where he wants us to live. And again, he wants us to own this before we see the fullness of it. For a full year before they're ever going to have Isaac, call me Abraham, father of a multitude. Call me Sarah, princess from whom kings will come. It seems goofy, but it's what Christ, it's what Christ has purchased for us. New heart, new identity, and lastly, a new joy, a new joy given to us because of what Christ has done. This idea of laughter, this idea of laughter, okay? So, first of all, you see the laughter in verse 17 of chapter 17. Um, it's, it's funny. <laughs> Talking about laughter, and I said it's funny. Um, never mind. But, no pun intended. But it's funny looking at this story when God tells Abraham that he's going to be the father of a nation. He's like, I mean, he, he kind of struggles to believe it, I think, but he doesn't really laugh about it. Well, but when he begins to talk about Sarah, his wife, that's when Abram, verse 17, then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And again, this is where Isaac comes in. The name Isaac means laughter. Again, I'll, I'll unpack all this in just a second. But then over in chapter 18, okay, in chapter 18, again, God comes down here in some sort of a theophany in, in the flesh, because uh, this was part of making a covenant as well. We don't have time to talk about all this, but he came down in the flesh um, to establish this covenant with him, ate a meal together with him. And Sarah, as they're eating, Sarah's hanging out behind the tent wall. <laughs> and you, I assume that Abram had, Abraham had told her about what God had said, that she would be called Sarah and that kings would come from her. Um, but in verse 12 of chapter 18, when God says this again, that he's going to visit her and she's going to have a son, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And God calls her on her laughter. Now, now here's the thing. There's a couple different types of laughter going on here, okay? So, for example, um, my boys tell me all the time that I need to stop with the dad jokes, okay? I think that I'm funny. Apparently, I'm not funny. Apparently, they're just, they're just dad jokes that I tell. Um, but there are different types of laughter, just, just, just naturally, right? Like, there are some, like the other day, I was with <laughs> some guy, and I mean, it was, do you know what I mean when I say you get the giggles? You know, like sometimes you get that but where you just, you can't stop laughing. Like you're just, your stomach hurts, you almost, you, almost, you almost can't breathe. There's other types where it's kind of like, another type of laughter would be what I call courtesy laughter. 
So, for example, when I say a dad joke and it's really not funny, you might all go, ha, 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 ha. And then you might say this, and this is, this is when you know it's really a dad joke. You don't actually laugh, but you say, that's funny. <laughs> is it real? Because you're not laughing, but you're saying, you know that you sh- it should be funny, but you can't laugh because it's not really funny, but you just say, that's, that's funny. So there's, a di- there's different types of laughter. Are you with me? Okay. In the same way, I think, like, I think there's different types of laughter going on here. And it's, it's, really, it's really beautiful what God does. It's not just, um, I'm not just making this point just to be silly. Uh, but I would say, if I had to kind of put these in categories, first of all, looking at Abraham's laughter, I would say that Abraham's laughter is somewhere along the lines of a, a type of unbelief that can only think inside the box. He, can, he, can just, he can't think outside the box. Again, in, in verse 17, you know, he says that Sarah's going to have a son. He falls on his face, so there's an act of reverence here. Yet at the same time, he's laughing to himself. And God tells him this, that Sarah's going to have a son. And what's Abram's response? Verse 18. And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He just can't, Okay, okay God, I, I hear you. You're gonna smoke it, but yeah, like uh, Ishmael, right? Like this is, what we, this is what we can produce. This is what we can do. This is what we can make happen. And so if you, if you could just use this, God, if you could just bless our efforts, that would, be, that, would, that would be great. But God says, verse 19, no. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your efforts, Abraham. I'm not talking about what you can produce. I'm talking about what only, what only I can do. It's, it's this unbelief that just cannot think outside the box, and God's people, we as his church, get stuck in that type of unbelief, that type of laughter a lot of times. Sarah's is a little bit different. Sarah's, if I can, no offense to the ladies here, um, but Sarah's is a little bit darker, I think. Sarah's laughter is a laughter of cynicism and unbelief. And Sarah says to herself, after I'm old and worn out, Shall I now have pleasure? There, again, if you think about Sarah's life and all that she'd been through and not being able to have a kid and you know what a big deal that was, especially back then, and being promised this, yet it just never coming about. I think there's a type of cynicism that hear this laughter, it's almost like a mocking. <laughs> Whatever. That type of laugh. But both of them, the unbelief that can't think outside the box and the laughter of cynicism, they both come from a heart that does not trust God, folks. And here's the reality, is that even for those of us that know Christ, we have trusted him by faith, but just like the Bible says about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, it's we are growing, we are growing in our faith. We are to grow strong in our faith. And the reality is, is that even though we've trusted Christ and faith exists, there, are still, there is still residue of unbelief, remnants of unbelief that are left in our hearts. And God, in his mercy and grace, wants to step into our lives and he wants to root that stuff out. He wants to take it out. If I could just spend a little bit of time on the cynicism that I think you see in Sarah's heart here and by her laughter. Um, 
just for the record, can we just set something straight? Do, do you guys know what I mean when I say cynicism? So by cynicism, I mean like, it's always a yeah, but. Yeah, that was great, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, that, that, that was good, that was good what God did, but, you know, there's, there's, there, there's this over here. And it's, just, it's just always a yeah, but. It's not very hopeful. But, guys, do you know being cynical is not a fruit of the Spirit? It's not. Nowhere is that listed. And the reason I say that is this, is because I've seen this in my own life and I've seen it in the lives of other saints the longer they walk with the Lord, is that there's a way, not only that we're cynical, but that we make cynicism sound spiritual. The longer we go and we see somebody young in the faith and they're just believing and they're filled, they're filled with hope and we go, yeah, but just give them a little time. Somebody's all excited about the church and God's doing good things and we go, yeah, but just wait. Those church folks, ugh. we roll our eyes. Guys, that's not a fruit of the Spirit. It comes from a dark heart of unbelief and you need to repent of it. God wants to confront that in you just like he confronted it in Sarah. You know, we talked last week about the pain that church folks can cause. Yeah, that's real, and that happens. Welcome to the club. God's good. Get over it. Quit hanging on to it. Amen? Quit hanging on to it. And there's a part of me right now that you might be resisting me as I say that to you because you're like, you don't, don't mess with my pain. This is my pain. It's mine, and I like it. And it comforts me. Let it go. It's wicked. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. God is good when? All the time. All the time. And all the time? Oh, man, look at us. Whew. Got through that. All the time. Your cynicism is not spiritual. It is sinful. Question 26 from the Heidelberg Catechism. Speaking again of why God is able to, to make these changes in our life. We talked about this a little bit on prayer meeting on Wednesday evening. Question 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism says, What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ, his Son, my God and Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow." Now here's the kicker, the last line. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and He is willing also as a faithful Father. That's right. He is able to do so because He is Almighty God, because He is El Shaddai. Nothing is too difficult for Him. But here's the deal, folks, is that I think that the majority of the unbelief that exists in our hearts, and especially the unbelief of cynicism, that exists in so many of our hearts. It's not that we don't believe God is El Shaddai, that he's almighty, but we don't believe he's a good father. 
Most of our unbelief does not lie in the fact that we think that there's something God can't do. We know that he's great, but we don't believe that he's good. That's my question to you this morning. You say, Eric, I believe he's El Shaddai. He's God Almighty. He can do anything. Yeah, but do you believe he can do anything for you? Do you believe that he loves you? See, this is at the core of having a new identity in Christ, of having a circumcised heart. It's personal. It's not just that God loves the world. He loves you. He loves you. I feel like I could just say that for about the next 30 minutes. I won't. But I feel like I could. He loves you. Is Jesus Christ your Savior? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? He loves you. As much as he loves anybody else on the face of the earth, as much as he loves the most, that, that person in your mind that's just the most holy saint, and oh man, they must have just such an awesome relationship with God. He loves you that much. He loves you as much as he loved Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ, to belong to him. This is why we should not be cynical, because God is working all things together for our good for our joy, for our laughter. There's a, very quickly, I know i got to wrap up here, there's another type of laughter that comes from Sarah, not a laughter of cynicism, but the laughter of worship. Flip over to Genesis chapter 21, when Isaac is born, verses 6 and 7. Isaac is born and Sarah said, God has made laughter, listen, for me. Not just laughter about me, she used to be scoffed at. Hagar used to scoff at her. Servants used to scoff at her. And people still laugh over her, she goes on and she says. But now, not because she's barren, but because she's fruitful. God has made laughter for me. Folks, God is working all things together in your life for your joy. That's what he's doing right now, even though you don't see it. No matter the pain, no matter the hurt, he is working things together for your joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 18. Paul says, so we don't lose heart. We're not cynical. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, all the pain of this life that we see, it's only temporary. But that which is unseen is eternal. Amen? Worship team, you can come up. We'll wrap up. We're going to take communion today in just a second. And if I can, just real quickly, you know, what we're looking at here in these chapters this morning is God making a covenant with Abraham thousands of years ago, 2,000 years after Abraham, Christ would come and he would make a new covenant because he was the fulfillment of all the covenants and he established a new, better covenant. Not like these, not like these old ones. And the thing, though, that ties them all together, the thing that God has always required of his people, whether it's back in Abraham's day or whether it's in ours, He's always required this of his people. You got to trust him. You got to trust him. And that's why, time and time again, no matter where we start in the scriptures, um, it's why we always seem to end up back at this place. 
is that will you trust him? Will you believe not just what he says he will do, but will you believe, especially this morning with what we looked at, will you believe that what he says is true about you? Will you believe that he wants to bear fruit through your life? Do you believe that he's given you a new identity and he doesn't want you to be working out of the past, but he wants you to be working out of the future and what he says he has in store for you? Um, do you believe that he's given you a new heart? And I want us this morning, and again, I think it's fitting, we talked about circumcising our hearts and searching our hearts and guarding our hearts because we should do that each and every time we take communion together as a church family. But the primary thing that I want you to be searching for and asking the Lord to be searching your heart for and then that I want you to confess to him and then I want you to come and I want you to take it this morning, thankful that he's granted forgiveness to each one of us in our lives for this one specific sin, this sin of unbelief that many times comes across as cynicism, or it might be that we just can't think outside the box. But that unbelief, folks, is at the heart of all of our sin, because we don't believe what God says is true, not only about him, but about us, because of what he's done. And so as we come this morning, and as we partake of this, I would just ask that as the worship team begins to sing, you come as you feel led, uh, but take just a second. Look at your heart. Ask God to search it. And then confess it and repent. And come take the provision for your unbelief. It's the blood of Jesus. It's enough. So stand with me.